0: Well, greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ from Oklahoma City, and especially from the Mulder family. It's a real blessing to be here with you this morning to uh, worship with you all, see your faces again, and uh, to be able to worship you in, in your own building. It's uh, uh, quite, quite a, a different building from when I first saw it, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how the Lord will use this building in this community. Well, in Oklahoma City, I've been preaching through uh, the book of Acts. And uh, we've recently spent a bunch of time in Acts chapter 8. So if you'll turn there with me to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This will be the text for the sermon this morning. As uh, Alan has already noted, uh, the title of this sermon is, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy which is a reference you see in Joel chapter 2. And Peter brings it out in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, saying what, what the people are seeing before them as um, people are speaking in tongues is a fulfillment of that prophecy that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we see the early church going everywhere, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And, and we see a, a greater fulfillment of, of this uh, prophecy in Joel 2. We see their sons and their daughters prophesying of the name of the Lord. So let's turn our attention to God's word as we find it in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, was at, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Children, if I were to ask you what a prophet is, what would you say? Perhaps you would immediately think a prophet is someone who, who just tells the future. He's someone who will tell you what will happen in, in time to come. Maybe you'll think specifically of Isaiah, who prophesied of the coming of Jesus Maybe you'll even think of men like Jeremiah who prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, Part of the function of a prophet is certainly to proclaim the word of God as it pertains to future events. You saw that a little bit in Deuteronomy 18. A prophet is one who tells of future events. But a prophet can have a much broader definition than just telling of future events. A prophet is someone who proclaims the word of God in a particular context, who takes what God's word has said and applies it to that particular situation. And so Moses was a prophet, and yet his primary work was not telling the future, but instead was just giving the law of God to God's people. Thus, a prophet, in its broader connotation, is somebody who proclaims the word of God. In that sense, I'm a prophet as I preach God's word to you this morning. I'm taking God's word and applying it to your particular context here in Stillwater. In a certain sense, every single person is a prophet. They, whether through words or actions, convey their beliefs about how the world works and what they believe is good and true. We saw that a little bit as well in Deuteronomy 18. Prior to the discussion of what a prophet is and the coming of this one great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of Israel are commanded not to engage in sorcery and witchcraft. They were to be blameless to the Lord. They were to avoid these false types of prophecies, these false religions. Instead, they were to seek that one true religion. So everyone is... Uh, is proclaiming a certain message whether implicitly or explicitly by the way they live. And it's good for us as those who profess the name of Jesus Christ to sit back and examine what message we are proclaiming with our lives. There are many Christians today who do not proclaim a much different message from what the world proclaims. But we As those who have been united to Christ in our effectual calling must proclaim good news of the gospel with our words and our lives. And thus this will be the focus of the sermon this morning because in our text from Acts chapter 8, we are confronted with two different types of prophets. We see Saul as a prophet of destruction and death. We see the believers, on the other hand, as prophets of the good news of the gospel. So let's consider Acts 8 this morning under the theme, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Stephen's death, which was recounted in in Acts chapter 7, was an instrumental turning point in the history of the early church. With his death, the enemies of the church gained a blood lust for the Christian church, Persecution ramped up to levels that had not been seen by these Jerusalem believers before. The crowds that were once amazed and in awe at at the miracles and signs that the apostles were doing, and the words they were saying, now these crowds arose to kill them. The Greek text implies that on the very day that Stephen was killed, that a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem almost as if the energy involved in killing Stephen spilled over to all the others, necessitating the immediate uh, evacuation, the immediate departure of the church from Jerusalem. Now, For those who have studied Reformation history to, to one degree or another, uh, they'll be familiar with St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, when tens of thousands of Protestants were killed in France. In many ways, and that was like a mob um, uh, attack upon the Protestant religion. And we have a very similar scenario here in Jerusalem. But the chief character that Luke draws our attention to in this persecution is a man called Saul. For those familiar with the book of Acts, you know Saul has already appeared once before in the previous chapter. In Acts 7, verse 58... Uh, uh, We read, and the witnesses laid it down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So these witnesses who are going to stone Stephen, the the, uh, deacon in the church, they lay their clothes at Saul's feet so they can go forth and stone Stephen. That language of of just simply laying the clothes at the feet of Saul could give the impression that Saul was not fully invested in the death of Stephen. After all, all, he's, he's merely the coat holder. But notice the words of our text in Acts 8 verse 1. Saul was consenting to his death. Saul was agreeing with it. He was approving of it. And we see how quickly that, that approval of Stephen's martyrdom turns into action. In verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul, upon Stephen's death, took upon himself the role of being the chief persecutor of the church. In fact, the text with that word havoc describes Saul as having the disposition towards the church of a dangerous wild animal. One commentator said that Saul's persecution of the Jerusalem church was that of the ravaging of a body by a wild beast. Children, maybe you've seen some of some, uh, these nature documentaries. You've seen how a lion will go after uh, a gazelle or, or a zebra and, and ravage it. He'll destroy it. Well, that's what uh, Luke is telling us what Saul's persecution was like to the early church. It was like this wild beast attacking its prey. And this imagery actually continues through the book of Acts. In Acts 9, verse 1, we read, "Then Saul, still, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked letters for him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem." Luke describes Saul as this wild beast who snorts and breathes heavily in rage and frustration against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saul was truly a murderous beast towards the church, but he wasn't some low-life ruffian. You might expect such a a murderous person to be, be like a common criminal, but this wasn't Saul. Saul was considered to be an exceptionally godly man by his fellow Jews. When we encounter Saul first in the biblical text in Acts 7, verse 58, Luke describes him as a young man. Commentators argue that around the time of Stephen's death, he was was a man in his 20s. As a young man, Saul was a student under the Pharisee Gamaliel. Perhaps you'll remember Gamaliel's advice to the Jews in, in Acts chapter 5 when they're debating what to do about, about the, the Christians, what to do about the apostles continuing to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Gamaliel's advice to the Sanhedrin, you'll remember, was to wait and see, to not act upon this. So that if this was of God, well, you can't do anything whatsoever to stop it. But if this is of men, well, it will eventually come to its own conclusion. That was evidently not Saul's disposition towards the church. He rejected the teachings of his teacher. Saul went past Gamaliel in his zeal for the Lord. Perhaps he even thought of his former teacher as a moderate or liberal, not zealous enough for the law of God. We read in Acts 22 verse 3, Saul says this, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and zealous towards God as you all are today. Saul was one zealous for God, or so he thought. In Galatians 1, verse 13 through 14, we read Paul comments some more on his zeal. He said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was zealous for not just for the law of God, but for the traditions and strictness of his fathers. And we see that in the way he was persecuting the church. In his persecution of the early church, he served as a prophet. Seeking out letters against those who worshipped Christ. And seeking to, to kill the church, as a wild beast kills its prey, he was proclaiming the message that Jesus Christ was a liar, that he was not the Son of God, that he was not the Messiah. Instead, Jesus was a false prophet, opposed to God and the Scriptures of the Old Testament. Saul was an ardent Pharisee. He believed one was saved by obedience to the law and the traditions of the fathers. And Christ characterized the Pharisees in Matthew 23 as hypocrites who had no true knowledge of the law of God. So they bound heavy burdens upon men. They shut up the kingdom of heaven to men. They devoured widows' houses and abandoned the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And we see Saul the prophet doing all these things. Saul wreaked havoc on the church. He he entered homes and dragged men and women off to prison. He devoured widows' houses, not just figuratively, but literally. Yet he did so in the name of God. He did so in the name of what he would call true religion. Saul built the tombs of the prophets and adored the monuments of the righteous. He would would likely point out, oh, there's the tomb of this prophet and that prophet. Weren't they so great in the Old Testament? You know, if I had lived back in the days of the Old Testament, I wouldn't have put these prophets to death. I would have exalted them. But here we see him having no qualms, shedding the blood of the prophets of God. Saul proclaimed a message of death And hopelessness. And such a message bore the very real fruits of death and hopelessness. No matter who you are, you are a prophet of what you believe. By your life you are living a testimony of what you think is most true and most vital. And the question is... Is that message the good news of the gospel or is it a message of death and sin and destruction certainly many false gospels today with horrific fruits you now you have have those false gospels in, in the modern church. You have the prosperity gospel, the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church, the gospel of Mormonism, the gospel of Jehovah's Witnesses, or modern liberal apostate Christianity. All those false religions with the name of Christianity bring forth destruction and hopelessness. We all recognize this as Reformed Presbyterians. We all say, no, these churches all proclaim false Gospels. As we look at this text, I don't want to focus on the ins and outs of why those are false Gospels. I I want to focus on your actions and your words. What do your actions and words convey about your beliefs? When you go to work each week, when you deal with a difficult boss... Are you any different from your unbelieving co-workers? When your next door neighbor sees you around your house, do they see people who are known for their love and good works? Or do they see the same type of isolationism that is common today? People who are only concerned about themselves, and their own families. Do your neighbors see that there is something distinct from you Or are you caught up in the same pursuit of materialism and earthly prosperity that they are? When the world sees you interact with your children, do they see you interacting with a blessing from God or do they see you taking on the mindset that children are a burden and a curse? must be mindful of what the world sees of us. They must desire that they would see in us The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told us to abide in Him. In our abiding in Him, we need to ask ourselves, is uh, uh, is that abiding in Him apparent to the world around us? So I ask these probing questions because the church of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to be proclaiming good news. And this proclamation of good news continues even in the face of persecution. We read in our text that after Stephen was stoned, that devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. The unbelieving world could see the love that the early church had for its members. They made great lamentation over this this former martyr, even uh, 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 over this martyr, even though that could mean death for themselves. They made their love known to the world around them at great cost themselves. We also see that persecution scattered the church. sometimes the question can get asked if we as Christians can or should flee persecution. Well, the answer in our text is. Is, is fairly clear the early church fled from persecution yet Luke does not portray the early church as refugees helpless and and going forth in, in and in a, with with no purpose or, or function instead he presents them as missionaries those who are are being scattered throughout and, and are going with a specific purpose of a Now we have opportunity to proclaim the word of God in this city and that city and in this region and to this people. they are scattered like missionaries. they are scattered like somebody who goes to plant a garden and scatters seed throughout his garden. He puts one seed here and puts another seed there with a specific purpose that here there will be a fruit born and here there will be other fruit born. The early church is sown in the various regions of Samaria for the furtherance of the gospel. And you as believers are like seeds that are sown in the garden of this world. In every calling in this life, you have the opportunity to speak of the love of God towards sinners. Then thinking lately of, of God's sovereignty over all this, God has sovereignly placed you in and your particular neighborhood with the particular acquaintances that you know, with the particular co-workers that you know. And you might think there's some randomness in it all, but no, God has placed you in those specific circumstances and callings with a purpose. The purpose of showing forth His glory and glorifying His name even to these people. Churches... Proclamation did not stop with persecution. You could say, well, they have every, op- they have every reason not to, to be proclaiming the gospel. Here they're running for their lives. Here, here they're scrambling to find food and sustenance. Here they're scrambling to find housing. Instead, so the early church viewed this as an opportunity all the more to go forth and proclaim the gospel. Persecution did not shut them up. Instead, they seemed to gain more of a holy boldness in their proclamation of the gospel. We read in verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. All the believers went everywhere and proclaimed the good news of the gospel. They were all prophets. And this particular word for preaching here is the word that we get evangelism from. It's the word, euangelizo. Perhaps you can hear the similarity between euangelizo and, and evangelism. Literally the word means to tell the good news or to proclaim the good news. This begs an important question for us what role does every believer have in evangelism? Well, the text indicates for us that believers have a role certainly in the sharing of the good news. Every believer should have the desire and wherewithal to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ to his or her neighbor. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, we have those familiar words But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Every believer has some rule in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, in some Reformed churches, it can almost seem as the only person who is to share the good news of the gospel is the pastor. From our text in Acts 8, this is certainly not the case. Every believer is going and proclaiming the word. What does that mean Practically. We, we, as reformed Presbyterians, argue that it's, there's, there is to be a distinction made between clergy and laity. It's the preacher who gets up. It's the ordained pastor who gets up each Sunday and, and proclaims the word of God to you. Do not ask and, and say, "Well, who wants to who, who bring the Word of God to us this morning?" No, there's the preacher who, who is to be doing that. It's the ordained man, the one who's been approved and sent out by the church. What, what does it look like for every believer to be a prophet? Well, at its most basic level, it means that we as Christians keep the positive aspect of the third commandment. you recall the third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. As followers of God, as people of God, we have a calling to proclaim the goodness of the name of God. We who are called by the name of our Savior are to have a reverence for the name of God in every aspect of our lives. Thus, Minister Shorter Caggson says, the third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Every believer is called to be a prophet in, in reverencing the good name of God. And thinking about how how can I reverence God as I go about my day-to-day functions? How can I reverence God's name as I go about my labors as a mother? As I go about my labors as, as a, a, a child who goes to school? As I go about my labors in the university or at work? How can I reverence the name of God? In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, hallowed be your name. We are to hallow the name of God in, in our conversation. And this means we are to speak about the things of God to one another and to our neighbor as we have opportunity. Once again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says here, in the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he makes himself known and that we would dispose all things to his own glory means that as the world celebrates darkness and sin, Christians proclaim light and righteousness that they have received from Christ. We proclaim light and righteousness that we have received from Christ. Here we could go back to how the Old Testament saints were to be witnesses. They were to be a light to the Gentiles there would be a light to the gentiles in every aspect of their life even those aspects that might seem very foreign and we might scratch our our head about the the, the unclean laws you know why couldn't they eat these animals and and they could eat those animals a well, part of that was so that they would be distinct from the gentiles so that they would have reason to say well i'm i'm a i'm a believer in the lord i don't eat these animals because of what God has done for me. And let me tell you what God has done for us. He delivered us from the bondage of Egypt. He delivered us from the land of our oppressors. He brought us and made covenant with us, promising to save us from our sins. That's why we don't eat these animals, but we eat those animals. They're showing forth in their actions, in their day-to-day life, in things as mundane as, as what they were eating, the light and righteousness of God. And we are to be doing that as well. That As we abide in Christ, as we love our Savior for what He has done, we are showing forth the same grace and compassion that our Savior has had for us. We are showing forth the love of God. Now Francis of Assisi has often been attributed with saying preach the gospel at all times use words if necessary. Well that's uh, historians believe that's a false attribution. Francis of Assisi likely never said that. But it's often the message you hear proclaimed when it comes to us considering evangelism. Christians are encouraged just to proclaim the gospel with how they live their lives. Sometimes this can become an easy out for the verbal expression of the gospel. It's impossible for us to proclaim the good news with how we live our lives. The good news consists of words. It is good news. It's something that we need to to vocally express with our lips. Our actions can never Bring someone to the gospel. If all we're known for is a people who, who do, does good, well, then people get in their minds that, well, Christians are, are just those who do good. They're, they're, they're these morally superior beings. I was uh, in a taxi cab at four, about 4.30 in the morning uh, in, in Laramie on uh, yesterday, uh, trying to get to the airport, and uh, I had a a, uh, a Goth taxi driver, and she was talking about how how she thought Christians were simply those who who do good who 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 love people, and her expectation of the church was was that it would just be those who who love people. She certainly was right; Christians should be known for their love of others, but the gospel does not stop at that. Our conduct as believers does not stop at simply being known as those who who love others. We are those who proclaim the, God, the good news that God has loved us, even when we have failed to love Him and love others. We need to speak the good news to others. Now, of course, as I've already said, the way I as a pastor or your elders proclaim the gospel is distinct from how you as a laity prophesy. We have been set apart by God in our offices. We have the very public proclamation of the word of God. Paul tells Timothy, as an elder of the church, shall I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Paul does not say this This is to be the case with everybody. He says it specifically to Timothy because he has ha- he has had hands laid upon him he has been ordained set apart for gospel proclamation and in second timothy 4 verse 2 he would also tell timothy preach the word be ready in season and out of season convince rebuke exhort with all one's suffering and teaching we even see if if we are to jump down uh, through through acts 8 that uh, there is a special focus put on Philip and Philip's public proclamation of the gospel is public ministry how Philip proclaims the gospel is distinct from how the rest of the church did it and yet every believer is still to be a prophet he is to give faithful vocal expression to the word of god as he or she has opportunity in their callings and lives well, this does not mean that everybody suddenly becomes a street evangelist or the whole church goes out on, on the street corners of Stillwater and starts publicly calling people to repentance and faith. Rather, instead, their text is getting that. So that means you use... Your gifts of sharing the gospel as you have opportunity and ability. And if you are parents, such sharing the gospel starts at home. It starts with your own children. Mothers and fathers, you are to be instructing your children in the gospel. You are to be calling them to repent of their sins and believe on Christ. You are to be catechizing them, showing them the the things of God. Day in and day out, as you rise from your bed, as you go about on the way, as you live your lives, you are to be proclaiming the good news. And mothers, you have a very special role here. God has uniquely placed you in such a position that you spend a lot of time with your children as you nurture them and raise them. What an amazing privilege and opportunity God has given you to speak the good news of Scriptures to your children. For you as husbands, it means that you as the spiritual heads of your home, that you lead your family in the Scriptures. It means you pray with your wife and children. It means you read Scripture to them and explain those Scriptures in a humble and gentle and Christ-like manner. For others of us, this calling to be a prophet means that in our work, in our relationships, in our families, as we have opportunity, we try to explain the gospel to others. And this will look distinct uh, with the various relationships that we have. How we explain our, uh, our how we explain the gospel to our coworker who we see five times uh, a week will be distinct with how we explain the gospel to a family, mother, family member who does not know Christ or someone we just met on the street. With your coworker, you have the opportunity to often slowly get to know various aspects of their lives. Perhaps as you grow in relationship with them over months and years, they'll open up more and more about difficulties or questions they have. God has sovereignly placed you in that relationship to speak the good news of the gospel to them as they come to you. Perhaps somebody has just died and your co-worker is wondering if there is an afterlife. Or he's thinking, oh, what, what, what does this mean? What? What? Why is there death in this world? What? A, what an opportunity to bring to them the truths that you find in First Corinthians 15. There is comfort and hope to be found in it, Jesus Christ in the midst of death. Perhaps they would be encouraged just by a simple invitation. Do you have a church in this time? Do you have a community that can love you and support you? help you through this. How we share the gospel with a family member will will indeed look differently. You likely are much closer to a family member and know a whole lot more about them. You may have opportunity to be more direct with them. Or may have the ability to have longer, drawn-out discussions and conversations about the gospel. Had years of built-up relationship with, with these people. And you often, have, you might even have to still live with these people after you, you give them the gospel. And, and how, how we navigate gospel prophetic discussions with them will, will certainly be distinct. But The church must be a body that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our faith is not something that we can be silent about, especially as this world grows in depravity. The world needs such news. They're hearing from a godless culture, a message of hopelessness and meaninglessness. They're hearing a message like the message that Saul was proclaiming, a message of death, destruction. We, as the people of God, have been called to go out into the world and proclaim a gospel of life. And abundance. How can we keep silent about the news that we have when Christ cast the, the demons out of the gathering demoniac? This man begged Jesus that he might be with him. This man longed to, to be more and more with Christ. But as we read in Luke 8, verse 39, Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. We as believers have something so incredible to share with others. We have a glorious gospel to proclaim. And the more we grow in love for Christ and His Word, the more our hearts will burn within us to proclaim this news to others. Just as this demoniac had an understanding of what he had been saved from, so the saints in the early church had an understanding of the height and depth of their salvation. They had walked in darkness for years and years, and finally Christ had come. He had been born of the Virgin Mary, and he had suffered and died. But he had also risen again, and he had ascended up into heaven and given his Holy Spirit. What a joy these believers had even as they endured persecution because they knew they had been saved from their sins. They knew that the love of God had been shed abroad in their hearts. They knew the love of Christ and they knew that what they possessed as believers was worth dying for. There are not many things worth dying for. But let me submit to you that there is nothing more precious, more comforting, more glorious than knowing that the One who has created you loves you and has purchased redemption for you and promised you fellowship and communion with Himself for all of eternity. The friendships that you have in this world will come and go. The comfort that the stuff of this world gives you will rust and fade away. But for those who have Jesus Christ, they have a good news it is always good. It never loses value. It actually increases in value. It was the personal knowledge of this good news that prompted the early church to go prophesying in the face of persecution of Jesus Christ. It was their intense love for God that made them ready to face death in the ravaging havoc of Saul. May we ever pray to God that we would have such love for our Savior who has loved us so much that He gave His only Son. May we ever pray to have the hearts of the shepherds who, who saw the infant Christ and returned a glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for the love of Christ. We thank You for the love of our dear Savior. Do not leave us in sin and misery, but has saved us. Lord, we pray that as You have called us to be prophets in this world, that we would do so faithfully, That our love for You would extend to words and action. That we, as we abide in You, would show forth the Gospel. That You have saved us from our sins. That we have no hope in ourselves. You are mighty to save. Lord, I pray that You would encourage the congregation here in Stillwater. That as they... Go into this community. That they would be known as people who love You. Who love the Gospel. Who delight in You. Lord, I thank You for their witness here for for many years. I thank You, O Lord, that You have given them this new building. And I pray, O Lord, that, that many would come to faith as they hear the good news of the Gospel preached from this pulpit. Lord, I pray... That you would bless this congregation as it prophesies the good news of Jesus Christ and all their relationships and callings in this life. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching by turning our psalm books to Psalm 145, the C selection. Psalm 145, C We read in the last stanza there that I'll speak the praises of the Lord. His praises from my mouth will pour. What's the response of all flesh as I hear us proclaim the good news? All flesh will bless His holy name forever and forevermore. As we sing this song, we are prophesying of the goodness of our God. We are prophesying of the salvation that he has given us. As we do that, the Lord promises that all flesh will indeed bless his holy name. Let's stand and sing Psalm 145, the C selection.